All right, so let's open up Bibles to Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is where we're going to be today. Um, as we're getting there, and I was even talking to Caleb about that, we're a week away from camp whatever, and we're a week away, and me included, I'm going because we're a week away from um, heading out with 500 um, sleep-deprived, overstimulated, all jacked up on Mountain Dew drinking, phone-free teenagers, all right? Uh, I love them. Please hear me. I love them, but y'all need to pray for us when we get down there, all right? Camp is a big thing, and uh, we need the prayers um, of you. So as we do that, I, it reminded me, I was thinking this week, that um, when I used to be the student pastor here, and so I remember all a lot of camp experiences. The Lord called me to ministry through, through camp, but I remember this one specific camp year. What we do is before we even get to camp, we do a parent meeting and the parents are notified of rules at camp, all right? They, they're given those rules at camp, what to bring and the do's and the don'ts and all that stuff. Then when we get down to camp, we arrive and the students get to hear the rules of camp. There's a lot of rules on that paper. I mean, there's just a lot of them, um, <clears throat> but really they can all be summed up into two. It's like the, the law of God, two. You can sum them up. Here they are. Camp rules. Number one, don't do anything stupid. All right, that's the first one. Second one, if you think about doing something stupid, refer to rule number one. All right, don't do anything stupid. Uh, so that's, that's the rules, and, and, and you know that that's what they're, they're there for safety and protection, all that stuff. But you know if you've ever worked with kids or students, there's always that one kid, right? Might be your kid. <laughs> you don't know, right? Might be your kid. And we got down to camp and we dismissed them. They heard the rules. I mean, they were clear. They were explaining. They get all that. But we quickly identified the one kid. Didn't take long. Uh, they were supposed to leave and go to their cabins with their leader on the right trail. And then immediately, two minutes in, the one kid is off the trail. He's out uh, in the woods in Copperhead Country. He's just walking and roaming and doing his own thing. And so I'm like, okay, here's that kid. I got to go get that kid. So I go up and I said, I said, hey man, what's your name? And he looked at me with a sneaky little grin and he said, grievous. I'm like, this is not going to go good. I don't know if you know what grievous means. Grievous means something bad that's going to cause you grief. All right. That's what it means in the English language. I think in Hebrew, it must mean he who does right in his own eyes. I don't know. But um, this kid would not follow the rules at camp. No matter what we did, he would not follow the rules. We, uh, we had these moments where students will line up at the creek and they're doing quiet time with their Bibles and praying and spending time in the Lord. But, and then he's over there chunking rocks at the kids. He's just throwing rocks at them. Uh, we have worship gatherings. We get into the big auditorium and there's preaching and there's praying and there's singing. He's running around just yoked up on Skittles and he can't sit down. He's going to the bathroom every five minutes. He's running up on stage trying to get the microphone from people so he can talk. He's just everywhere, right? He is breaking the rules in every single station. There's a paintball uh, activity. They go to paintball. Paintball has safety rules. He is breaking the paintball rules, going around spraying people, shooting them execution style. I mean, he's getting like right up on them. Everywhere he goes, he's breaking the rules. Because he's breaking the rules, he's getting hurt. I see him in the camp nurse station all the time. You don't follow the rules, you get hurt sometime, right? Uh, we go to bed at night, and I'm thinking, ah, finally we can shut this kid down, right? He's going to get rest, and maybe he'll just lay there in bed and meditate on the zero tolerance policy, right? Well, when we said zero tolerance... 
policy. He thought 100% opportunity, right? He's going to use his advantage to where the leaders are sleeping to do whatever. There's just no matter what we did, this one kid just would not follow the rules. He just would not listen to authority. And because he would not, not only did he miss out on the good, good experience that camp can be, but he also suffered pain and injury, and he also distracted others around them from experiencing camp as it ought to be. There's always that one kid. But in reality, I think we can all be a little bit like that one kid. On our journey on this earth, on our time on earth as we live our lives, God has given us his necessary, sufficient divine, supremely authoritative word to protect us, to guide us, and to lead us into something greater than our normal, ordinary, boring American dream life. He's given us his word. But we, many times, are like the one kid. We don't want authority in our life. Sure, we've heard the rules, but they are a threat to us. We prefer a devilish freedom. We want to overthrow God, and we think we know better than God. We see his law, his word, his Bible as threatening to our comfortable lives. So what do we do? Instead of embracing them, we veer off, rebel, derail our lives. And what happens when you do that? Pain, suffering, sorrow, and you miss out on the blessing that this book is for you. I think that's what Jesus is going to address this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. This one kid, as we describe this one kid, it, it, it might be you today. Let's just, let's just be real. You look at this book And you would not say that it is the governing piece in your life. You don't meditate on it. You don't love it. You don't treasure it. It doesn't shape, mold, and bear any weight on your life at all. It's just, it just washes over you when you go to church. But if you really stood and were honest before the Lord, you say, no, it doesn't really. I don't go to the Word every time in my life when I need comfort and joy and peace and hope. It just doesn't shape me. So you might be that one kid today. My hope is that by the end of our time together today, you would see this book as an invitation to life, that it is your guide to protect you and to lead you into something greater than the life that you're leading today. Don't fall for the devilish freedom lie that Satan throws at you. Here's where freedom is found. Here's where life is found. That's the sermon that I believe that Jesus is going to teach us today. He's going to show us on this mountainside that it is an impossibility to be called a true disciple of the word, to make disciples who make disciples if we are not people of the word. The word is the way. That's what we're going to be talking about today. The word is the way. Here's how I think Jesus does this in this text. In verses 17 and 18, he's going to show us his relationship with the word first. Here's what I think about the law. Here's what I think about the word of God. 
17 and 18. And then in 19, the logical explanation is, is now that you've seen the, what Christ's position is in relationship with the word, now here's what you should do in your relationship with the word. And then in verse 20, we're going to encounter the relationship between the cross and the word. We're going to see the relevance, the connection there. So first, Christ and the word. Second, the Christian and the word. And third, the cross and the word. Here's the first one, Christ and the word. Let me read through the passage together, 17 through 20, and then we'll come back and break it down. Here we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribe and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at the first section here first. Christ and the word. Before we can even begin to have a relationship with the word, to see what our relationship with the word should be like, we have to first see what Christ's relationship with the word is. In the text here, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All right, so let's first talk about what he's talking about when he says the law and the prophets. At this point, clearly in human history, there is no such thing as a New Testament canon. They're not right. They don't have that. All they have is God's written revelation up to that point, and they call that the law and the prophets. They don't have copies of the Bible laying everywhere. What they have are copies of God's written revelation in the synagogues that were called the law and the prophets. All right? Summation of that, the Old Testament. That's what they had in there. They had copies of it on scrolls in the synagogues. The laws were the first five books of the Old Testament, right? The Pentateuch or the Torah. So that's what they were. All the other books in the Old Testament referred to here as the prophets, right? So law, prophets, all it means is the entire Old Testament. That's what they had there in their synagogues. And he's not talking about the New Testament. Now, what is the purpose of God's law and the prophets in the Old Testament. Why did he give the people of God law, the prophets, in the Old Testament? Why do you need to read the Old Testament? Let's talk about that. Two reasons why he gave us the law and the prophets, why he gave them the law and the prophets. Number one is he had saved and ransomed the people out of Egypt. He had chosen Israelites above all people on the earth after he saved them and he wanted to give them these life-giving instructions, here's how you live in light of me saving you. Out of the good gratitude of the salvation that I've already given to you, here's the way you live. You live differently than everyone else on the earth. That was the first purpose of the Law and the Prophets. The second one was this. The entire Old Testament, was the purpose of it was to illuminate the sinfulness of man and to reveal need for a savior. It was supposed to serve as an MRI to the Jews, that they would look at it and say, 
oh, I've got a disease inside of me. It's called sin. I will never be as righteous as you require me to be God, and I need a Savior in the Lord. That was the purpose of it. But the Jews, they missed it. They saw the law and the prophets and all these 205 uh, and 356 do's and don'ts. They saw all of them as a religious rule book that they had to keep in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. All that did, this rule keeping and law keeping, trying to get to heaven, all it did was well up a parade of self-righteousness because they were better at doing the law than everyone else. Look at us. Look at all the things we're doing. The pious, the religious, elite people, they were knocking it out of the park externally, right? And so what happens is they start to they start their pride and their arrogance. They start to suffer from massive judgmentalism. Look what you're doing. You're not as good as me, self-righteous pride and arrogance. And in all of that pursuit, they missed the entire purpose of what the law was pointing to. They missed the Lord entirely. External conformity, but they lacked internal authenticity. All right? And and then Jesus comes on the scene here, and he begins to teach something different than that. He's not teaching law-keeping as a means, as the way to the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about repentance, relationship with the Father. He starts to teach in such a way that I believe the scribes and the Pharisees thought that he had come to ruin the law. They were trying to throw a stain. They were laboring at trying to throw a stain on Jesus' teaching, calling him a heretic. Hey, this Jesus, he's tearing the law apart. He's he's trying to abolish the law. He's a heretic. And then Jesus' response to that is what? I have not come to abolish the law. I have not come with scissors in my hand to cut out the Old Testament from the Bible. I've not come to abolish it. He also didn't come to introduce new material, to alter, add to it in any way, shape, or form. He says, I have not come to do that, but what I have come to do is to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law. He was trying to show them what the law had always been about, pointing to Jesus. It wasn't just about external conformity but it was about inward authenticity. It was about hands, yes, but it was also about holiness. You see, Jesus was very, very serious about commands. Don't ever mistake and think Jesus is not serious about obedience. He was very, very much interested and passionate about commands. We'll see in just a minute how passionate he is. But he was a lot more concerned with the heart because if he got the heart, he would get the hands, right? That's what he's teaching here. And I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. He says this about what Jesus is doing as he's filling up the law, not, not cutting it out. He said this. The purpose was to take us from the shallow end of rule keeping to the ocean floor of a relationship with God through Christ revealed in his word. So he didn't come to drain it, cut it, abolish it. He came to fulfill it, to accomplish it. 
But he didn't just stop there. It says here, he, did, he didn't just not abolish. He didn't just fulfill it. He goes above and beyond that. And he says this in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, the dot. He's talking about things uh, in, in your translation. It might be called tittle or a yod. He's talking about literally the stroke of a pen that would dot an I or cross a T, the smallest letter of the alphabet in the entire Old Testament will not pass away until the heavens and the earth passes away. He's very serious about the Old Testament. He's passionate about keeping the law. Not a psalm or a proverb, even Habakkuk and Leviticus, every single word of God, Genesis to Malachi, Old Testament, everything in there is very, very important to Jesus Christ. And if he doesn't cut it out, neither can we. You know, why this is so important as we study his posture towards the Old Testament we have to begin to think what our posture is with the Old Testament as well. Some would say, hey, we're not under the law anymore. We're under grace. It's all about love now, not about commandment keeping. Jesus did that for us. You know what that person is? They're a one-legged believer. They, they stand on the New Testament. The Old Testament has no relevance to them whatsoever. They think that they can live like hell and still get the kingdom of heaven. It's called antinomianism. Oh, Jesus is not serious about commands and law. No, it's Old Testament, right? Jesus was about both Testaments. We have to be both Testament people. I think Jonathan Edwards said that the Old Testament was the gospel in bud and the New Testament is the gospel in bloom the Old Testament is the autobiography of God. The entire Bible is pointing to one huge story about Jesus Christ and the gospel. He was very serious about the Old Testament. So then you and me, we have to be very serious about the Old Testament. That he had not come to abolish the law. Now, after seeing his posture towards the Old Testament, it's a natural, it should be a natural progression how ours should be. Now let's look at it, what he says in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's that therefore word, right? We know what to do. We see therefore. We have to go backwards to something Jesus just said. And what did he just say? I'm about the word. All of the word, the Old Testament word, the New Testament word, I'm about the word. Because I'm about the word, you need to be about the word too. And since he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, then you and I can't avoid it. Since he didn't come to cut out the scriptures, you and I can't cut out the scriptures of the Bible either. We're called to conform our lives to the entirety of the scriptures. I want to ask a question here for a minute. If you're here 
and this book is life for you, you believe it's to guide you, to protect you, to love you, and lead you into greater things. How many of you believe that? Show of hands real quick. See, it, it actually works. People actually believe this stuff. Sometimes when I preach, you, you're thinking, I don't know if anybody believes this joker. I don't know what he's saying. No, it works. People do believe this. They believe the entire scripture that this book is the way of life. And so they submit themselves to it, not in perfection, but in direction of their life. It governs what they do. Jesus loved the word. I love the word. But here's the but here. Jesus is giving a warning first to those who do what? Who relax on the least of the commandments. Those who relax on the least of the commandments. I think why he uses this word here on relaxing on the least of these commandments here, because the Pharisees had this uh, teaching that they were weightier matters of the law and they were the lesser matters of the law. And they were big about the big things and they didn't care as much about the lesser things. Let's see how Jesus, if he agrees with that. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And in, in that text, what Jesus is saying, if we look at that, he said that the light matters was tithing. We could go on and say, man, serving, worshiping in church, being in life groups, giving, generosity, very practical, light things. He says, yeah, you're doing all of those things. You're going through the motions. You're knocking it out of the park in religion. But man, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Externally, you look really, really good. But inside of you, your heart is cold and hypocritical. You have no compassion for people. You don't, you're not generous in your heart. You're full of pride and arrogance. You don't love your enemies. There's no honesty in your heart. And they've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Now, as he comes out of this, I think it's very safe to see that Jesus is very serious about all of the commands in Scripture. Okay? So if he is, so should we. Every commandment, the least, the weightier matters and the lesser matters, we all should be very serious about those things. Do you know what we often call or attempted to call people who are absolutely passionate about all the commands of God? We call them legalists, don't we? Oh, man, calm down, bro. <laughs> You're getting over the top. You're getting in that radical stuff, man. Can you just calm down? No one's perfect, right? A legalist actually is someone who thinks that they can earn their salvation or begins to teach extra biblical requirements for salvation. That's what a legalist is. Someone who's serious about the Bible, 
Every command, the light ones and the weighty ones, you know what they're called? A Christian. They're called Christians is what they are. And they see all of the commands as very serious to the Lord. They do not presume upon his grace because he paid for our sins on the cross. What does it mean to have a relaxed view of the scriptures? That's the warning here. I think most people relax in regards to their Bibles and the scriptures and the commandments because it will offend their lifestyle. I think a relaxation happens because it's going to call them to some things that they're neglecting and call them to some things that they're embracing. I think that's a threat. So then they see scripture and a relaxed posture as either suggestions from the Lord, recommendations, and they have a relaxed posture. As someone who has a relaxed view of the scriptures, they probably have dust on their Bible sitting at the house. They don't open it. They don't read it. They only come in here once a week to look at the scripture. That is a relaxed view of the scriptures. Someone who scrolls through their social media feed and they see a passage of scripture, they hit like, they keep scrolling through. It's like they're taste testing. Oh, I like that, but nah, I want something else. That's what it means to have a relaxed view of scripture. Relaxed view of scripture is something that, um, man, you, you don't give your life to. You're not daily or at least attempting to live out the scriptures, to study the scriptures in your life on a regular basis. That's called relaxing. Lukewarm relationship with your Bible, that's what it means to have a relaxed posture towards the Scripture. And I want you to know, I really do think that Jesus is teaching here, is if you have a relaxed view of the Scriptures and the Word, your relationship with Jesus is also very relaxed. You cannot be a fiery, zealous, on-fire follower of Jesus and then have a very relaxed view of your Bible. It's an impossibility. It can't be. They are inseparable twins. This is Jesus' word. How can you divorce this from Jesus? We have to be people of the word. Those who relax are called the least in the kingdom of heaven is what we see here. Anybody in the room want to be the least in the kingdom of heaven? I doubt that, right? I hope there's no one here that just says, hey, I just want to get in. I mean, by the skin of my teeth, I just want to get in. Like, I hope that's not you because the purpose of salvation, the purpose of the gospel is not just to get you in heaven. It's to invite you into abundant life right now, right? To make much of Jesus right now. Now, until his kingdom does come. And you cannot do it without the word as your guide. So those are the ones who are relaxing. I would just ask you a question in reflecting in that section. Does relaxing in the Bible describe you this morning? I'll, I'll, I'll give a, a real practical application. So when you see those cars, the blue things each week, and I talk about them, and you look at them, and it says tithing, serving, getting in a life group, uh, whatever it may be. And you look at those things, 
Are you doing those things? Are you practicing hospitality in your home? Are you walking across the street to your neighbor sharing the gospel? Are you doing those things? If you're not, you're probably relaxing. I don't need to point that out to you. You can self-diagnose there. But do not be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But then he describes this different person. Let's look at this different person who's called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, those who are great, they know the word, they do the word, and they teach the word. Know the word, do the word, and they teach the word. How about a great opportunity to talk about what a great dad looks like this morning? Okay? A great dad is not someone who has a lot of money. A great dad is not someone who has a great career thriving. A great dad is not someone who gets their kids to all the cheer team practices. Oh, I'll do anything for my kid. I'll chase trophies on the weekend. I'm always there. I love them. That's not what a great dad is. Great dad is not described and defined by the precision of his golf swing or the stripes in his grass so his neighbors may covet his lawn. A great dad is one who knows the word of God, who does the word of God, and teaches the word of God. The text actually says does and teach, but I think we can all agree you can't do it and you can't teach it if you don't know it, right? So let's start with knowing it. You can't know it if you don't read it, right? you got to open your Bible to know the Word. You have to devote more time, passion, and zeal to this than you do The Bachelor and Netflix. It's misguided passion. But if you dedicate yourself to this and your zeal is directed towards this, oh yeah, you'll begin to know it. But it doesn't stop there at knowing it. Pharisees knew a lot of scripture too, didn't they? You can know a lot. I mean, I I know people that have some of the best doctrine and theological positions you could possibly say. They can write dissertations on covenant theology and doctrine of grace and Calvinism and all. They can do all that, but they don't do what they know. The most simplest commands in the scripture, they don't do them. All of that knowledge means nothing. They don't do what they know. You got to obey what you know. You don't just stop there. Then you begin to teach. You begin to teach those things in your home. You begin to teach those things to your children. You act and live those things out in the way that you treat your wife. Sacrificial love. By the way that you engage your neighbors, do you know your neighbors? You know your neighbors. I mean, this, this is how you live it out and actually do what you say that you believe. And clearly, this is not just for dads today. It's for all people. Moms and grandmoms and students, kids in the room, we have to be people of the word. Why, let me show you how important the word is in shaping your life and your children's life. LifeWay did a recent uh, study. They polled 2,000 Protestant churchgoers. And what they were looking for is they were, they were polling some thriving people who were just loving Jesus. And they wanted to know 
what were the practices in your home as a child that impacted you the most to whereas today you're on fire for the Lord? You would think in that poll that maybe going to church might be the top one. It wasn't. Going to church is very important, but it wasn't. The number one thing was the word. In their homes, they grew up in their homes seeing mamas and daddies read the word, teach the word, show them, and do the word. And men, listen, I'm not going to blast you today. It's not a drive-by guilting. We all fall short, right? We all are prone to wonder and to the sin that so easily entangles us to get off of the rails and all those things. There's an abundance of grace for you and your shortcomings. Just pick it back up. Let's go pray and plead to God. God, give me the desire, give me the discipline to begin to do this in my home. So I don't want to drive by guilt everybody in the room, but let's go, men. All right, you can do this. God will never call you to something that he would not equip you to do it. And every good command in Scripture is meant to secure your greater good. That ought to be a motivation enough to do that today. Now let's move to this last piece here, the cross and the word. Because there's a major problem here, okay? Let's look at it in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says something very shocking right here. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, if you try your best, you try hard, be better than most, and you're in. He didn't say that. He didn't say good people get into the kingdom of heaven. What he said was extremely shocking. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you don't get into the kingdom of heaven. And to the Jew here, to the, to the disciples he's preaching to, this would have blown them away because the scribes and the Pharisees, they are the religious varsity team. They are the most pious, the most religious. In their eyes, they thought was the most righteous people in all of Israel. And now you're telling me I've got to surpass that? Pharisees knew the first five books of the Bible by heart. They had memorized all five first books of the Bible. How are you doing on your reading plan right now? When they would walk and see a piece of mint um, on the floor, they would pick it up and they would tithe off of it. How is your tithing and giving at the church right now? They would travel across land and sea to Get Jewish converts. Are you traveling across the street to share the gospel with your neighbors? So they're knocking it out. These guys are not. How in the world will normal people like us ever be able to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? This is a major dilemma for all of us here today. The demand is perfection, by the way. When he says it must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, he's saying, ye must be perfect. What a dilemma. But there's good news for you here today. Christ made a way for your righteousness to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. And here's the best part about it. It's not yours. It's the righteousness of another. It's the righteousness of the cross. Look at Romans 3, 21. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So you can't get it through the law or law keeping, he says. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's supposed to point to him. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is black and white as clear as day. God requires righteousness from everyone in this room. That means perfection. And he has provided a way. And it's not through law keeping. It is through the perfect life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, for all who believe, who trust in faith alone, through grace alone, he imputes his perfect righteousness in the place of our pitiful performance. It's the beautiful, most beautiful exchange you could ever get. The righteousness of God revealed in Jesus. Does anyone in the room want Jesus? I hope and I pray that you do. If you've not given yourself over to this today, stop trying to work your way to heaven. You'll never get there. He's talking about an impossibility of self-salvation here. Give your life to Christ. Surrender to yourself. Come to the end of yourself and give your life to Christ. I pray that you do that today. If you want to know more about Christ, there is an invitation to you that you must accept and you must respond to if you want the Lord Jesus Christ. Come talk to me after service out the door. Mark a a box on that card there. Talk to someone you know here who knows Jesus. We want to invite you into life. Jesus Christ is your righteousness. Now, as we do, uh, we segue into how we're going to respond today. The righteousness that God gives to us through Jesus, it was free to us. Remember, you don't have to work your way through it, not through law keeping or paying your way. You can't earn it. It's free to us. But it wasn't free to Jesus. It cost him everything. It cost him his life, a bloody, torturous, murderous death on the cross, facing the full weight of the wrath of God that should have been aimed at you and me. He took it all. He paid it all in order to give you the righteousness that you needed to get into the kingdom of heaven. So we celebrate that. That's what the Lord's Supper is, that we remember the bloody death of Jesus Christ, his body and his blood shed for us. So if you got your little cup there, get that out and begin to work on that. I know those things take a little bit to get through. As you do that and get ready for us to do this together, let's always remember this is an appetizer. We do this and as we wait until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, so then we can experience the great banquet uh, and not have to eat on this appetizer. And also, man, Lord, come quickly so we don't have to keep eating these little wrappers and bitter, bitter bread and these things too, right? Jesus, come quick. Um, but this is a meal for people. Let me tell you about this meal. It's a family meal. The only people that eat this meal are people in the family of God. Religious people don't eat this. 
people who believe in a God don't eat and drink this meal. Jesus' people drink this meal. People who have received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, that's who eats this meal. So if you've done that, we're going to do that. If you've not ever done that, you are called and really commanded to not partake in this or else Paul says you eat and drink judgment upon yourself. It's very weighty. This is not a play thing we do today. So you withhold because your greatest need is not a little cup with bread and juice. Your greatest need is Jesus Christ. And we love to lead you to that, right? For those who are going to eat and drink today with us, I'm going to give you space for examination, for confession. During this time, this is for you to do individual soul work that we may be, just for a few minutes, just ponder that the greatest problem in our life is not the people in our life and not the sin of the world or the country, but the sin that still remains inside of us. That's what you do right here in this point. Bring those things to the Lord, confess those, receive the grace of God, and then I'll come back up and lead us through the elements.